Welcome to the Maritime Executives Podcast Series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner Podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. Today, we have Joey Farrell, who is the Business Development Manager at Resolve Marine and Salvage, and Paul Benecki, U.S. and European editor, and we're talking about global salvage and the issues facing the industry today. Yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon, and uh, I know Resolve Marine was involved with that. Um, Joe, could you speak to that first, please? Yeah, for sure. And uh, first, I'd like to just thank you all for having us, having me on. Um, it's a nice break from the regular work schedule. So uh, <laughs> thanks again. So I, I was in our Theodore facility in Alabama when we were called um, to dispatch our tug when when we heard some oil rig was on fire. And I actually went out and I, I went out there and saw the thing burning. Um, we made the trip, you know, got underway and... Uh, and basically um, had basically had a fire you know fire kit firefighters and and foam and all that um, and went out there and sort of saw the whole the whole you know scenario which was really pretty intense you know the, the flames were massive and it was something that nobody really expected of course so we were out there for a couple of days um, while it burned and, and the attempts to you know put out the fire um, weren't successful and the thing eventually sunk and then we came in. And I was sort of like, all right, well, that's that's the end of that. But we, you know, after that, that we didn't realize the extent of what was going on. And the next, you know, five months of our lives were were basically nonstop, you know, ninety hour weeks, kind of um, helping support the effort. It was tremendous effort. There were so many companies there. Um, what a, a catastrophic mess! It was pretty incredible. How many men did you? How many boats did your your company have out there? So, so we actually we had well every asset we had, which probably at the time totaled maybe a dozen or so. But we actually ended up taking over logistics support for a number of operations. We had like five or six. Um, one was you know we put like sixty miles of boom out in front of uh, Louisiana. Um, the project I was actually in charge of, and I was like twenty five at the time too, and I had one hundred and eighty vessels. I was overseeing myself, me and actually one other guy. <laughs> so, and this was sort of a first, you know, in this, so we, we ended up, um, and that mission, the function was actually to support uh, these decontamination sites, which were um, actually North Star at the time was a company we had worked, we were working with. And they put up these jack, jack boats, um, jack, I'm sorry, lift boats all over from Texas to Florida. And the idea was that vessels coming in from the skimming operations would, would need to get lifted out of the water and decontaminated the holes before they came into port. So they didn't drag a bunch of oil in. So, and that was, that was a matter because each of those sites had like, I don't know, 40 or 50 people and you had like 10 of those. And, and then you had, you know, all the boats supplying, um, taking off the wastewater and supplying the fuel and the water and the food and, and all that. So and that was, again, just one of, those are two projects. And then we actually had our assets out there skimming, you know, and that was sort of interesting because, you know, it was really just, get whatever you can to get the oil out of the water. And we learned what worked and what didn't work. You know, a lot of the, the pumps, for instance, that are designed for, for oil recovery, 
are great for oil recovery, but they're pretty horrible when you put a bunch of seaweed and logs in them. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of their gear pumps. So so we learned, you know, the best thing to do is actually a vacuum truck. So we'd stick a vacuum truck on the back of the boat and use a vacuum truck to create a vacuum or put a vacuum on a tank. And then you you know, there's no moving parts, right? So everything can pass through. So anyway, it was it was a very it was a very uh it was intense, you know, and we had to really learn on the way. And of course you there was never an objective that you figured you never really got anywhere because it was just nonstop. I think there was forty or fifty thousand people in total employed and you know, we were probably three hundred or four hundred if you added up all the you know, our our partners. So we were I guess we were a small piece, it didn't feel like a small piece, but it was uh, you know, essential for our, our sort of sector and well, uh, look back in 10 years and, and say, uh, you were on the job. Uh, we were on the job. We were reporting it. And um, here we are uh, 10 years later, and we're uh, dealing with another big issue around the world, COVID. Um, yeah, well, I would uh, like to ask you, if we have an accident, how do we respond to that accident? How do we get people... Uh, to get on airplanes, get down to different countries, um, get quarantined. I understand that a crew that worked for Smith or somebody like that got down to the job and decided, no, we don't want to do this, and they left. Uh, did you hear about that? I couldn't really speak to the details outside of what I've heard from you know people I know. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely it created a, a significant challenge for them, and it, and it is for us too. We're on a project off Scotland right now, and uh, we have, luckily we have you know resources. We have people all over the world, so that helps. But we also part of our overall response plan it always involves um, surging adif- additional people from other locations. You know, once you get the job in, in gear. So we've if you asked me this question, you know, two months ago or a month and a half ago. I think I would be way sort of at a loss of what to do, but we've we've had a call every single morning uh, for about six weeks now, um, specifically to deal with COVID, and it's sort of just it's turned into sort of a, a catch-up call. But we're looking at all the guidelines from all the different countries, from South Africa to India to um, to Europe, you know, all the all the countries in Europe, and of course the U.S. And we're actually planning every single day to the day. Um, how do we do this? We have a dry dock here coming up. We have people to come here. We have to re- repair a crane boom there. It's, it's very, uh, it's a very dynamic, but we actually, I think at this point, we know enough to know not to expect anything, but to sort of try every avenue um, available, you know, getting, getting people moved around. It's quite difficult. Paul, well, why don't you join us? Yeah, actually, I, I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit more about that. So crew movement is a, a massive challenge for every sector of the industry right now. Um, there are countless uh, mariners stranded at sea and having to extend their contracts on ships. Um, so how are you guys managing to move your crews? Are, are you using uh, charter flights, private jets? Um, how does that work? Well, it's been, honestly, it's been a combination of, of different efforts. We had one project over in one country in Europe, and people weren't able to fly out. So they actually had to get in a van and drive to another country and then fly out. And this was actually at the very beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, we quarantined all the, everyone else, everyone there was quarantined. This was prior even to, even the, you know, stay home at, uh, at, they were at home, work, work from home kind of thing that's going on now. So to tell you the truth, you know, we, it just depends, but we've been able, we've managed to respond to three projects in the last, 
four weeks, um, one over in Asia and one over in Europe with crews from Africa, Europe, uh, America, and of course, India. And each one has taken a ton of energy. Um, but no, it's not, it's, it's, airlines are still flying. You know, it's really, actually, I'll tell you what, the biggest challenge is, is keeping the safety of our people in minds when doing all this. And it really is a matter of trying to understand their exposure, any sensitivities they would have to getting this. And honestly, to everyone's buy-in. You know, this is not a normal situation. It's almost akin to sort of, you know, going into a war zone and working where this is not what we normally do, but, you know, would we do it or not sort of depends on the severity and who's willing to consider that. And that's something that does happen from time to time where, you know, projects go in this, this dangerous kind of areas. And we usually look at them um, – yeah, we look at it the same way. So in this case, it's basically understanding and having everybody understand. Well, this is this is the expectation. If if you if you are able to go, you know, and you want to work, here's the opportunity. And so far, everyone, honestly, on our teams have been very willing to to help and continue to help out. Um, so so I guess my point is, you can get there if you want. It's more about are people willing to go, um, and and put themselves at risk, you know, through the going through all the channels it gets to get from from the U.S. to Europe, for instance. Or India. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe it's tougher for some of the um, the large crewing agencies for trying to move 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 yeah. people at once. What? Uh, and trying to... Do, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the hours the hours per person that it takes to get somebody from A to B, is probably, it probably takes three working days for every one person that we move. You know I mean? If you had 2,000 wow. people, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't use our our um, methodology, I, th- I don't think, to move that kind of number of people. And, and then, of course, when, when a city hears that 2,000 people are going to board airplanes from their, you know, their airport, it gets it becomes a bigger thing. Um, luckily for us, it's teams of, you know, between four to eight from different regions. It, it doesn't – we don't have as much of an impact. Right, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so the, the coronavirus shutdown has also meant a, a huge slowdown in shipping, right? There's tons of ships anchored up. Um, a lot of people reporting significantly lower business volumes. Do you foresee this having an impact in terms of the amount of salvage work available over the next six months, a year, if this, this slowdown continues? Yeah, so interesting. You know, we, we, uh, one of our services is tra- we monitor traffic in Alaska, and we actually just saw a surge the last two weeks were the busiest two weeks we've ever seen. Um, in vessels transiting Alaska. And I haven't actually div- dove into that data to tell you what kind of vessel, but that may be coinciding with ex- extremely low oil prices and people storing oil. I'm not too sure. Um, but uh, it also, yeah, so so there is a, actually more traffic in the northern Pacific that we've noticed. Um, however, of course, yeah, you are correct in that demand is seriously plunged off- from our perspective, what we've always seen, and this has been um, not – it's sort of anecdotal in a lot of ways, but it's, it's validated by my growing up after the financial crisis, for instance, the end of the industry, is that uh, when, you know, the market gets – goes starts to, you know, degrade, what happens is vessels really um, – the maintenance just – that's the one of the first things to cut, right? Any extra maintenance, any extra crew, any extra – things that aren't totally necessary, you know, coding those internal tanks or, you know, having that extra engineer to work on that, those, those, that older engine and um, maybe spraying down. I mean, there's a, there's a million little things that sort of just, you cut those, right? Cause you can still operate the vessel without painting it, 
you know, it'll still sail, right? And you can still you could still legally get from A to B with the minimal crew versus the normal extra two ABs you carry to keep things well oiled. So, you know, in the short term, it's a downturn. But what we've always seen is actually a spike following any type of economic recession or our downward pressure in the shipping industry. Um, and, and, and actually, I mean, the, the years following the financial crisis were a boon for the salvage industry. So, Joey, how many people or how many companies or major players in the industry today uh I think 10 years ago, there were quite a few, and today there's only a handful. Can you give us a, an explanation about what transpires yeah. in the deep water so horizon? That's, yeah, that's a good um, good segue. So, you know, I think you go back, i say 10 years, which would have been 2010, then you had yeah, eight or nine. You had basically eight or nine major players out there. You had, you know, Spitzer, Titan, Mammut, of course, Smith, Resolve. TNT, Global, yeah, well, Global, I think they're more of a domestic salver now, but they were actually in, in a lot more international work at the time gotcha. um, as far as getting rec removals. This, the growth spurt was just after this financial crisis, you had all suddenly all this work to do, and really nobody was equipped to do it all. You know, I, I, Resolve was quite, it was a much smaller, uh, we had a much smaller profile at the time. And, um, I mean, I'm thinking now, Deepwater Horizon, I think we had just acquired the Alabama facility, and we hadn't really gone worldwide at the time. So, so suddenly there was a, a bunch of work. You know, 2010 was two years after the financial crisis, and that would have been about when, I think, ships start to have their issues arise. So I think everybody rode the bubble over the top, you know, and then you had the Concordia, which really took which really took Titan right out of the picture, and they were a big wreck removal player. So they got on that project, and they became non-competitive in every other bid. Um, but then it got a bit crazy, you know, then you had sort of this weird idea that it was almost like a, like a, like a tech startup or something like, you know, like a, as if this market's going to grow, right? I mean, it's salvage, you know, nobody's demanding this. It just happened to have this big spike. So a lot of people got in and it was all these ideas of, you know, growth strategy and you could acquire the market share by, by downward pricing on prices and beat everybody out and you'll be the, the sole provider. Well, you know, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, it's, it's a pretty flat, if you average it out over 20 years, it's a pretty flat line. Um, and we expect it to continue to be so as far as the revenue. So this big surge in revenue and all these new players entered, it really wasn't sustainable. So it's been a rough, you know, not a rough, it's been, an, it's been a business cycle, right? In 10 years, you had from, you know, $150 million a year in revenue to $800 million around 2013, if I remember. And then down to, you know, the, the, mid threes right now and that sort of is where i think we'll probably see it stabilize and maybe even decrease a little bit um so you can imagine eight players sharing 800 million you know for, fast forward four years and, and bring that cut that revenue in half so we we rode the wave you know and now um so do you have you basically have three players now and um and re and as actually if you asked me a month ago i would have said four but ardent uh their investors recently decided to wind them down and um, a chunk of them, of their, of their American portfolio, got sold to uh, I think Don John Smith. So yeah, so they, basically from from our eight players or however many players there were in 2010 to, to three today. Okay. So it's um, a lot of change. If you can imagine, 10 years, all that happened. You got from a bunch of players entering to everyone sort of freaking out and leaving, and three left. <laughs> so that leads me into Open 90. Um, Tell us what is the profile of operators in the United States. Um, you say there's three globally. Or, or, you know, can 
uh, operator under Open 90 have one vessel and be considered uh, a, a, a bidder on a particular job, or does Open 90 require that you have numerous vessels, clean up equipment? Uh, tell me how that happens and what that uh, looks like in the world, if you will, Open 90. Uh, we haven't had a big oil spill off the United States since uh, Deepwater Horizon. That was 10 years ago. I don't think anything has really happened since then besides the car carrier um, off of Georgia. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there, has, there is work. You know, there has been work from Open 90. Um, Eagle Atome was one. A barge, you know, collided with a, basically a, a vessel carrying a ton of condensate. And it's um, and, and so every, you know, every probably year or two, there's what you consider a pretty decent-sized spill. Um, I mean, to answer your question, Open 90, if you look at, you know, the oil spill response companies, Osros, um, MSRC and NRC are the only real two players there. You have um, basically uh, sort of a stable revenue, uh, subscription-based kind of revenue, you know, model where these where these companies are, they have revenue generated from the subscriptions to pay for this response posture, right? Um, the salvers are were a bit different. Um, you know, back in the 1990s, the mid-90s, there was a bunch of work in the U.S. and Caribbean, and there were a couple a couple of domestic salvers, uh, Resolve included. That were always competing for that. So when Open 90 came out for for the oil spill response companies, they really they weren't in existence, right? So they were formed out of nowhere, and they said, "Hey, listen, well, they don't expect oil spills to happen, so let's make sure we get covered our base, our yeah, our fixed costs for, for with these with these um, subscriptions." Whereas the salvers looked at it as, "Well, if I'm not listed on their plan, I don't get work anymore, right?" So it created this price war um, that last. Still today, actually, um, and if you look at Don John Smith, and they're they're out there right now giving away uh, coverage for four years free. Um, you know, not to get on my soapbox here, but there's <laughs> that wasn't really the spirit in Open 90 to have a bunch of people um, the salvers without adding response capacity, right? Because it's one thing if you if you have pumps and people and equipment and boats everywhere, stationed in every port, and okay, you're going to give us free. Well, that's good on you, but. Um, there isn't really the same capacity for the salvers, uh, for the salvage industry as there is the oil spill response industry for that reason. And well, I shouldn't say for that reason. In all honesty, there ha there's just been, a, it's been treated differently. For whatever reason, the oil spill responders are treated, there, there's much more stringent vetting requirements. Um, the Coast Guard doesn't let them get away with not having a real response capacity, whereas the salvers, it's a bit more, well, vet yourself and make sure that you're good kind of thing. Um, and honestly, that's not that's that was the industry industry being the salvers, the American Salvage Association, saying in the very beginning that now we're good, we got this kind of thing, you know. So it's an interesting. It's just a, it's just two different segments under the same regulations that were treated differently because there was a precedent set by salvers, right? When we were out there, we were already there for okay, fifty years, and we already know how we're do, how to do this. So don't tell us what to do. Whereas the Osros sort of came in, they were crafted from this Open Ninety. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's still evolving today. You know, we still see um, changes in in how things are. You know, what resolves hope is that there is more vetting, that there is more requirements put on the responders, that it's not just a commodity, it's not just a checkbox. Because we have a lot of equipment, we have a lot of people out there ready to go at a moment's notice. Um, you know, we want that to be recognized. You know, for 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 the effort. Quite honestly, 
I think it might be really great to give readers uh, sort of an overview of okay. you know what what it what it takes to successfully bid a job and get the right crew together, get on scene, um, and actually make it work as a business. So, do you think you might be able to give us a just kind of a summary of how it works over you know the cycle of the job? Yeah. All right. So, um, so you know, the first thing is sort of not lost to anyone that in order for for a wreck removal to happen, an emergency usually has to happen first. So generally what happens is the ship gets in trouble somewhere. Um, and, you know, the efforts to save the ship, which is the emergency response part, that open 90 and all that stuff is focused on, that fails, right? Or, or it fails for fault of the salver or not or whatever. For some reason, the ship ends up on a rock. So so once that emergency response phase is over, um, what happens is you have the owners and hull underwriters decide – it's a total loss. And this is an important step because once the hull underwriter, which is one type of the insurance, and, and I should back up and say there's two types of insurance. There's hull and P&I. And all you need to know is that hull and machinery, if the vessel is lost, they have to pay a check to the owner, like 99% of the time. And the P&I are the ones that cover the liability for that when the government says, well, that's great, you're paid out, but you still got to get your ship off my beach. So the P&I um, are the ones that usually will go and vet. Uh, the, 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 um, the rec removal companies. So Resolve, for instance, will submit our tender to a P&I club. And to put, you know, to, to be specific or literal about it, there's usually a number of um, brokers or uh, consultants in the middle that sort of help vet. But generally speaking, once the rec is total, is con- decided it's a total loss, then, um, yeah, right. So then the, the owner gets his check and he's out. The P&I club has to vet and work in, in under the constraint of whatever government that the wreck, the beach is on or the wreck is on. And then the salvers compete for that. And, and a lot of times, you know, we're competing on, on price, um, on payment terms and weather and risk. And, and for instance, some jobs will say, um, go all in, you know, and, and, and they want you a hard dollar lump sum and, and, um, they'll maybe pay you 20% on signing and, and 80% when you're done. And we would look at that and say, okay, well, you know, what does that look like for our cash flow? And then we look at the weather and, and it's, it's a large, it's a pretty significant process with a ton of unknowns. You know, um, a lot of times you, you bid these jobs and you've only had maybe a crew of three or four guys circle the wreck for a day in a Zodiac. And then they got to fly back because the tender's due in two days. I mean, it's not uncommon to have a ship hit the beach, break in half, and then you have one week to make a full wreck removal uh, proposal, including a hard, hard dollar um, price, which is, which has happened. I've, I've actually been on a plane. I flew to Africa to bid a project and I flew back and it was the worst flight of my life both ways. And, uh, you know, in five days and we had to put the bid together and it was, and it was a $140 million bid. Um, at the end of the day, you can imagine, I mean, you're, you know, it's a lot of, um, stress trying to, to cons- consolidate all that information and, and make it, uh, you know, so anyway, yeah. So it's, it's from that point, you know, the P&I club will, will award the salver, um, the project, and then it's not their duty to carry it out. Um, in today's more today, you know, a couple of years ago, when there were eight bidders, there's a lot more pressure to take all the weather risk and all that. But a lot of people went out of business, you know, doing that. Mamut in Iraq, they went out of business, taking a hard dollar job, all in. Um, Ardent, their unwinding was taking projects at low margins with hard dollars, um, going out of business. Titan had gone out of business twice before they got bought out by Crawley. And Ardent would have gone out of business for a number of times if they weren't if they weren't funded by their parent company. So um, it's an extremely risky resolve. You know, my dad owns the company. Um, 
we are not going out of business willingly. And we look at them at risk and say, you know what, if, if we're trying to, if we're talking about putting a company at stake here, even if it's a 1% chance, that means in a hundred jobs, you're going to lose one. So we're not doing it. Right. So just a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of, um, I think you have to <laughs> give you a summary of how it works, but yeah. You know, no, it's, I, it's like, interesting. I, I remember your dad saying the, some of the best jobs you ever got was the ones he the did. ones you never got. Yeah. Yeah, the best, some of the best jobs are the ones you never got. And that's, that's, I mean, right. that was him, you know, seeing others go out of business, um, around him, quite honestly. And, and, you know, and Resolve had some rough jobs too. We haven't been unscathed. We put, we've had blood in the water, you know, on jobs that we thought would be, hey, this could be two and a half million. And next thing you know, we spent eight on it. Um, yeah. or, um, or, yeah. So it's, it's been, it's a trip, but you know, we're, we're, it's a different company today than it was 10 years ago. And there's a lot more analysis. And there's a lot more, um, you know, people with a lot, a lot more intelligent people looking at this thing now, and, and we, we just look at it differently. You know, it's not a bunch of old guys out there trying to hack metal apart and make as much money as they can. It's more about customer relationships and, and providing solutions to pretty complex problems, you know. So we see ourselves today as a services company um, more as maybe you know, 20 years ago, we were more probably an asset company that, you know, use our assets to do stuff with metal. Now it's more we provide solutions to to companies with problems that they're not used to seeing. So maybe just in closing, um, do you want to give us your thoughts for the next couple of years, what the salvage market's going to look like? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I'm just trying to put it in the right terms here. I think that what we're going to see is probably a less crazy, less volatile market um, where I think everybody who's in it right now is smart enough to stay in it. You know, and I think as long as the players that Resolve, Smith, and CNC um, can rationally continue to make good decisions and not just go to war with each other um, as companies had in the past. As I think there's a, there's a pretty bright future for us as we're sort of the, the survivors, you know, after a real tumultuous uh, tumultuous uh, decade. Yeah. Um, well, thanks a bunch. This has been this has been great. I've learned actually a lot. Um, so I want to really thank you for your time and for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Anytime, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.